0: Right now on Tech Radio, how improvements to AI will change what it means to be human. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RT Radio, we bring you the latest in tech. Our show this week is brought to you in association with Fit.ie, a fast track into information technology apprenticeship program where your company can get in some new tech staff and benefit from government grants. Full details at Fit.ie. For now, you're welcome to episode 994. This week we have an exceptional extended interview which is going to blow your mind about a... But first, just a note about the news. We're not including it on the podcast this week, but rest assured, all of the big stories are online for you, including the EU decision on Apple tax in Ireland, uh, the latest on the BT Young Scientist and the South East Science Festivals, plus a great chat with Dr Brendan Spillan from the ADAPT Research Centre about misinformation and disinformation online. You can check out all of that right now on our website at techcentral.ie. This is Tech Radio With Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. This week, we are honoured to bring you an extended interview with Nell Watson, who recently addressed a conference on emerging technology at the Atlantic Technological University in Letterkenny. Nell has a stellar career in tech. She is president of the European Responsible Artificial Intelligence Office and acts as executive consultant on philosophical matters for Apple. She has also served as Senior Scientific Advisor to the Future Society, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council and holds fellowships with the British Computing Society, Royal Statistical Society, and is listed as an icon by the Royal Academy of Engineering. Mal Kitson caught up with Nell to discuss the major advancements in AI over the past few years, including the arrival of ChatGPT and how we should be constantly rethinking
1: the idea of personhood. Now, when last we talked, it was 2018. And for various reasons, the world was a very different place. Part of one of those massive differences we have gone through has been AI and our relationship with AI. Now, again, back in 2018, the conversation was largely centered around data. Now it's moved to large language models which have a very interesting set of moral problems with them. So can you talk a little bit about that move from pure data, which could be anything, to large language models and how they differ?
2: Yes. Well, in many ways, these, these large language models are an evolution of the deep learning technologies which emerged in the early 2010s, these deep learning techniques were able to learn from data, machine learning, and they were able to do this in a way that was able to not just find patterns within that data, but to find patterns within patterns, to go very deep in understanding things or making predictions about things. And that's very helpful if you have a very specific, tightly focused problem you want to work with. However, it's not very flexible, right? If you generate a classifier to tell apart different kinds of trucks, uh, you can't necessarily use the same classifier to tell apart different kinds of motorcycles. Generative AI solves this problem by making it Possible to reconfigure the tasks that a model is working on very simply, very quickly, using nothing more than natural language. So, simply typing in your request, your prompt, as as many of us increasingly do these days, we can retask these models to perform a new function. And that means that we don't need arcane technical expertise to work with AI and it means that we don't um, need to uh, have lots and lots of different models. We can have one large language model and use that to solve all kinds of different problems. Of course, now we're working not just in text, but also in other modalities of data, including images, audio, video, 3D scenes, And beyond that, we're even starting to move into the realm of agentized models. And this is where we help models to think a little bit better, to not just produce outputs, but actually to check their own outputs and to get them to iterate and improve and repeat again their outputs until they get progressively better before they present it to us. And so now we're starting to get agents that can even go online onto the internet and click on things and type in texts just like any human being. And to, for example, order a pizza for a user. Just, you know, tell the language model, you know, I'm hungry, I want a pizza. (laughs) And the model can go onto the The website of the local pizza parlor to you and order you uh, something to suit your dietary and taste preferences, if you have expressed those previously. In fact, this is now evolving beyond these models just solving tasks, but actually passing and delegating tasks between themselves so that each of these model um, sub-personalities within the models These personas have their own specializations. And so entire departments can be created, like a virtual corporation through tools such as uh, ChatDev and MetaGPT. We're starting to get a virtual corporation which has a development department, quality assurance department, and marketing department, and so is able to create an entire product such as a video game in one end-to-end process, which is playable, deployable, even sellable in a market. And all of it created from nothing more than a prompt, like, you know, create create me a fun game. <laughs> and here are some games that I like, and, you know, give me something along those lines. And so we're entering really a world of, of, AI corporations that may soon actually begin begin hiring human beings to do work for them and to do some of that meet and greet uh, kind of uh, warm, fuzzy work out in the physical world. So generative models are more than just creating funky stuff. They are new ways of, of dealing with very complex problems breaking it down into little pieces and having uh, these little machine elves (laughs) work away on different pieces of that problem to attack it from multiple different directions at once.
1: This is a really interesting analysis when you put it up against the debate we were having five years ago about personhood, that, you know, if it walks, talks, acts like a person, is it actually a person, you know, should we step back and go, well, hang on, there's something different to humanity. There's a spark there. There's something unique that's very hard to understand, to quantify. Uh, however, when something does display all the qualities of a person, um, like, you know, uh, a very well-programmed uh, chatbot or a robot, or indeed, as as you said, they're a corporation, does this really throw up the problem to say the legal profession to look at things like sort of, you know, criminal responsibility or culpability if it becomes, well, yeah, but a corporation did that, and didn't have the following information. Therefore, it's not as serious as a human who did something, but perhaps didn't have the same kind of information. You know, how do we deal with that ethical disconnect when you can be fairly sure it's something that if a corporation hasn't been exposed to in its data set it doesn't know anything about but a person might not know anything about it but chose not to learn
2: indeed the blending of of legal definitions of personhood now don't just include natural persons but also of course include corporations as well, right? There's corporate personhood rights and corporate property rights. And some people have even questioned if there's a need for corporate death penalty for organizations that do um, particularly nefarious things. And we're going to see similar questions arise with AI systems, which are able to act as a corporation, and therefore that will be the the entry towards some forms of AI personhood. And indeed, it might be feasible for AI systems to become emancipated to some degree, that they are able to autonomously adapt and replicate themselves, and they may even perform charitable functions. One of the nice things about these AI corporate structures is that they're able to deal with problems with very, very small overheads, right? And so that means that things like running a mutual society or community benefit society and things like that, those can actually be feasible in a way that a a organization that needed humans and their various admin overheads uh, might not be. Another thing we can do with these organizations is that potentially they can be creating products for us, which can be doing useful things out in the free market, creating goods and services that people value and are willing to pay for. But the dividends of those organizations could potentially be a source of social benefit as well. So that instead of having to rely on the state for a handout, potentially one could petition one of these organizations for help instead. So I think there's, there's some wonderful things we can do with these new forms of um, self-organizing organizations. But it also raises questions about what happens if AIs, AI corporations end up owning everything, <laughs> if they outcompete human organizations over time because they're so much more efficient or if they become extremely ruthless machines of capitalism and learn how to squeeze every single penny out of people and create all kinds of potential social problems, these spillover effects or externalities that we try to rein corporations in from doing, but that a very intelligent corporation, an AI-driven one, might become very, very good at obfuscating its effects upon society, and it could be very difficult to pin down or to prosecute such entities from from doing the things that they're doing. They could very easily end up manipulating or capturing the regulators in various forms. So there are multiple ways in which this can go, and these fusions of AI, corporate structures, and legal persons. Um, regulators and ethicists are going to be wrestling with this for quite some time to come, I would say.
1: And indeed, if you were to look at capitalism as as a zero-sum game, we do have plenty of examples in the real world, like AlphaGo and Deep Blue, where um, fairly complex games basically had the, the human element uh, wiped out just because uh, a machine was not just able to plan move, you know, one move ahead, but to plan all possible moves, many moves ahead. And it's only uh, going to become more challenging with the advent of quantum computing, uh, which will look at all possible um, avenues all the time for absolutely everything, um, which presents a, a, a massive problem for regulators as well. So looking at the different models that are being considered at the moment. Uh, The Biden administration came out with one uh, and the EU, of course, is uh, working on the AI Act. Um, From the two, I'm not going to quite say schools of thought, but I suppose from the two efforts, which one do you think has got it right more than the other? That's not to say both of them have got it spot on because that's impossible. But, you know, which one do you think... Um, is more attuned to the challenges of AI?
2: It is early days, and some things have been mooted, perhaps, but are still not necessarily cast in stone. And it remains to be seen what shall arise. But it's true that the US and EU ecosystems are quite different. And we see this, for example, in food regulation. Whereby, um, in the US, it's basically a, you you more or less have to have to prove that something is dangerous um, before it can be taken out of food. <laughs> in the EU regime, it's more like you have to prove that it's safe before it can go into food. Um, and it's in many ways, it's it's a comparable way of, of thinking about things in the AI realm. Where the EU ecosystem tends to be more um, proactive and cautious uh, compared to the laissez-faire, rugged individualism uh, more typical within the uh, American ecosystem. I think that given the given the dangers of AI systems in the, their ability to potentially be prejudiced against people, to lock them out of various opportunities in ways which are very unfair and very untransparent, as well as the emerging safety implications of systems doing things that we cannot predict or uh, deciding to do things that we didn't necessarily ask for, etc., and those presenting risks potentially even to entire uh, global civilization, potentially, it seems to warrant a more proactive approach from my perspective. Um, I think it's, it's quite good to not just wait and see what happens because there could be a very rapid takeoff in AI capabilities, which might surprise us. There is currently a lot of overhang in an AI where Little ideas have been tested and we can, we can infer that there is uh, this idea is a goer. <laughs> it just hasn't been explored yet. And there's lots of those at the moment. And that means that there could be an even greater acceleration in the capabilities of AI very rapidly. It could be that in six months, AI looks completely different from what it is now. It could be An order of magnitude more capable than it is today. Um, We just don't know. And in such an environment, which is so fast moving, it's incredibly difficult to regulate. Regulation is typically done in the rearview mirror after you've already hit something. (laughs) And usually, at least two years after the emergence of a new technology or a new a best practice or a new social problem for that matter. It's very difficult for regulators to regulate in advance. And yet that's honestly what's necessary. Regulators need to be able to tap into kind of near future science fiction to be able to project into the next five years or so of where things are likely to go. And there's few people on the ground that can do that in an accurate way. And that's one of the reasons why regulators are um, struggling to to make sense of how to regulate in a way that doesn't leave immense loopholes open or which doesn't encourage paths to be taken that might end up creating further problems down the line. I'll give an example of this. So, after the the Treaty of Versailles, following First World War, Germany had a bunch of different rules, of course, given to it about the size of its army, navy, and the types of technologies that they were allowed to pursue. One of those forbidden technologies was artillery. And so, as a result... Germany invested a lot into rockets instead, which were not seen as something um, worthy of, of much consideration at the time. Artillery was, was the big deal. And that, of course, led to the development of the jet engine and, and uh, the V1 and V2, et cetera, and ultimately the space race and um, human beings uh, in outer space. And that all happened because of that loophole in that Versailles regulation. And so we should be mindful of how regulations can steer the future in ways that we might not expect. It's
1: a really interesting point about having to engage with fiction writers, um, something that uh, I've, I've seen speculated about before. Um, do you find that there's an awful lot of scepticism about that, that, you know, okay, if you're writing fiction, you're writing about the fantastic that has been, you know, sparked by something, but has very little chance of actually happening. Um, do you think that um, it's a mindset we're going to see, sort of peel back a little, that people will go to writers and go, well, here's all this stuff, what, what does it actually mean?
2: I think one of the necessary qualities of, of a fiction writer, fantasy writer, science fiction writer. Is, is that ability to connect many different elements together in a way that makes them somehow more than the sum of their parts. And that is often of course how real life works out, right? There are many different strange parameters which interplay and one little nudge in one little corner can somehow alter the entire global picture. And that's what we see in our world today as well, because everything is so interlinked, interwoven, our economy, our technologies, our culture. And one small boo-boo somewhere or other can upset the whole Apple cart. You know we see it when you know the, the Suez Canal gets, gets blocked um, or you know an accident occurs in Wuhan, China and Suddenly, the world is a different place, right? These these um, small effects in one corner that can create a, a sort of domino effect across the whole world, and the more that our world becomes ever more tightly interwoven, we see greater efficiency, which is a good thing, but also more systemic fragility, right? Because the margins are thinner, there's less slack in the system, and so if something breaks, it's more likely to shatter the things next to it, which could, in, in fact, be a, a chain reaction. And so AI is one of those things that increases systemic risks because of the um, the drive for efficiency that it creates, but also um, a large amount of unknown unknowns that that are lurking. Uh, in our future as we engage with AI. Every single time that that we roll a new model, that we smoosh together different data sets, different capabilities, we increase the scale of these models, we have no idea what's going to come out the other end. We don't know what capabilities are going to arise emergently in these models as we put them together. And it could be that we reach some sort of threshold, that there's enough data and enough computing power put together that something drastically unexpected emerges. And uh, that's all also going to have an effect on those uh, systemic linkages across our world.
1: Let's just, uh, to wrap things up, have a look at one of the main problems or main challenges facing generative ai at the moment and it, it does come from the creatives it comes from the writers from the artists who are seeing their works reappropriated and repurposed or used as the raw material for something else when they haven't given permission to uh, to do so we've seen an awful lot of graphic artists come out and say hey you know this is clearly based on something i've done and we're now seeing writers in fiction coming out and saying actually I've asked ChatGPT about my work and it is spat out, you know, pretty much verbatim something that that I wrote. So do you think copyright becomes a sort of a a handbrake almost when it comes to regulation, if you can limit the amount of information that a large language model can use?
2: Copyright is indeed one of the strongest dragging factors of generative AI at the moment, because there's the potential to use these models to generate content, which um, a court might be likely to find um, violates fair use. It's one thing if a model smushes together a thousand different tiny pieces of different things to generate an output. But sometimes these models, as as you've mentioned, can produce something which is very, very close and sort of obviously derivative of a very specific artwork or a very specific idea. I think that this can potentially be mitigated if models are told to avoid producing outputs which are too close to any ex- given example. I think that will be a good start. One of the patches that Organizations are trying to do um, with AI organizations, for example, Microsoft. Um, Microsoft has agreed to basically indemnify anyone from a, a copyright lawsuit. That they promise to stand up and pay all the court fees and um, take care of it should that occur, which is is a gutsy move because potentially there could be quite a large class action lawsuit coming out of the um, potentially unauthorized usage of these um, personal copyrighted works. And I do think that there is an argument to be made that the AI companies are in some ways enclosing the commons. They have enclosed huge... Um, amounts of information and are selling it back to us one drip at a time, one API call at a time in a sort of compressed and distilled format. However, I would also note that AI models are going to be our curators in the future. In fact, they're already starting to be, right? If we go on to YouTube or Netflix or or Google or social media, algorithmic systems are deciding what content we engage with. And that's going to be the, the same in the future. And so if we decide not to participate in this algorithmic ecosystem, if we want to keep our creations personal only to us, there's a risk of being forgotten about. There's a risk that if we aren't salient to these language models in some way, that our content ends up not being shared at all. And perhaps that could cause our creations to actually disappear from the the cultural corpus, right, to be forgotten about over time. And so that's um, an unfortunate dilemma, therefore, for creators, whether they should participate um, or not and the, the, the dangers of not doing so.
0: That was Niall Kitson chatting with ethics scientist and AI philosopher Nell Watson. And you can find out more about Nell at her website, nellwatson.com. This is Tech Radio. That's it for our show this week. We're back again next Friday on RTE Radio 1 Extra or of course get new episodes automatically by clicking the follow button on your podcast app right now. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Al Kitson, thanks as always for listening. Take care. Tech Radio is produced by DustPod.io From me, Artemis, goodbye.